Welcome to the Unianthology podcast from the C.G. Young Institute for Chicago. Edith Rockefeller McCormick, philanthropist, intellectual analyst. To celebrate International Women's Day, we are sharing the webinar and panel discussion, Edith Rockefeller McCormick, philanthropist, intellectual analyst, in its entirety. The first hour is a presentation by Andrea Frederici Ross, author of Edith, the rogue Rockefeller McCormick, followed by reflections by Kenan McKee, PhD, Jungian analyst, and Victoria Drake, PhD, that then opens up for general discussion. The presentation includes archival photos that are not intended for uh, such a wide distribution as YouTube, so the video version is available on our website for a nominal fee, and a link to that will be in the show notes. Before we get to the seminar, I just want to share a submission from one of our listeners. Drew from St. Louis, Missouri. I am an RN working in a medical unit where psych patients go when they have medical necessity. I'm thinking about studying psychology, so I was searching for psychoanalysis and a mythology based on Joseph Campbell's advice that psychoanalysis is the best tool for discovering the grammar of mythological symbols. That's when I came upon the first episode of your podcast this morning. You can imagine I'm super excited to watch movies and hear your analysis. Thanks sincerely for what you're doing. You can support this free podcast by purchasing something from our online store or making a donation at youngchicago.org slash give. Now let's get to the seminar. Let me say too, I'm uh, Arlo Kampian and I'm a union analyst here at the Institute and co-chair with Debbie Stutzman, the, the program committee. As you know, Andrea is the author of this book. She's also the author of the book, Let the Lions Roar, uh, The Evolution of Brookfield Zoo. She's been published in five books, Mothering, Sheridan Road, Chicago Agent, Hensdale Living, and other magazines. Her essays can be found on the Center for Humans and Nature blog and their City Creatures anthology. Her career has been unconventional, including since as the operations manager of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and as assistant to the director of the Chicago Zoological Society. She currently runs the library at the local public school while working on her writing projects. Andrea graduated from Northwestern University with a Bachelor of Arts degree in German language and literature. So we welcome you, Andrea, and we look forward to your uh, presentation. Let me turn it over to you. Great. Thank you so much, Arlo and Danielle. Um, I'm delighted to be here today to, to talk to you all about Edith. Um, thank you for sharing your morning with us, all of you. Um, I think we have one person tuning in from Hawaii, so I hope you get a good sunrise out of the deal. Um, I know it's early there. So, um, so yes, I, this morning, I hope to introduce you to a forgotten woman of Chicago who played an important and often unacknowledged role in forwarding Carl Jung's theories and practices. I'm not an expert in Carl Jung or his methods, but through detailing Edith, and her husband Harold's experiences with Jung, I hope to give you a glimpse into his inner circle from the period 1913 to 1921. So I will be presenting a biographical sketch of Edith with a very heavy focus on those eight years with Jung. 
I first became aware of Edith many years ago when I wrote Brookfield Zoo's history book, Let the Lions Roar. I knew that she was a colorful character. I had heard stories about how she believed that she was the reincarnation of King Tut's child bride, about the disastrous breakup of her marriage and her spectacular fall from grace. I had also heard a lot of misinformation. I just didn't know that at the time. There are many books about Edith's father, John D. Rockefeller, the oil tycoon, and her brother, the great philanthropist. But information on Edith is scattered. Many historians believe that Edith's papers were destroyed after her death. Piecing together her life was a bit of a scavenger hunt, collecting a few letters of correspondence here, some recollections from family or friends there, scouring newspaper accounts and steamer manifests until I gradually assembled a more complete picture of this enigmatic woman. Largely because of her, of her younger brother, Edith's childhood is well-documented. Bessie, Alta, Edith, and John D. Jr. grew up first in Cleveland and then later in New York City. Their lives were filled with prayer, study, duty. For her father and mother, both devout Baptists, the priority was serving the Lord and keeping personal desires in check. Her mother's favorite maxim was, is it right? Is it duty? Mornings began with prayer before breakfast. Latecomers were fined five cents, with father being the most frequent culprit. Continued with homeschooling, with carefully selected tutors who came to the house. Interspersed with chores, daily instrument practice with Edith on the cello, and even scheduled playtime. Dinners were held together with discussion often centering on the church and with ministers being the most frequent dinner guests. All of their playmates were either relatives or compatriots from the church. At first, the children likely had no idea of the family's incredible wealth. They earned pennies by catching flies, pulling weeds, practicing music. And they had to account for every penny, with Junior, the youngest child but the only boy, becoming trained as the family accountant. The money was intended for the church plate, not for spending. Everything had a purpose. Everything was scheduled. And everything was intentional. As a little girl, every hour of Edith's day was scheduled and efficiently occupied. That was a habit that would stay with her. And the piety, the diligence, and the constant denial, that would also have lifelong repercussions. And there was fear. Once the family moved to New York City and Edith was in her teen years, the hate began to seep in. As one of the nation's richest men, John D. Rockefeller received tremendous amounts of mail requesting financial help from organizations and individuals in dire circumstances. As the children got older, their father began to involve them in sorting through these letters. It is said that one month, they tallied up 50,000 letters of requests. Mixed in with these pleas for assistance were hate letters, 
and threats. Strangers camped out on their doorstep or followed their father to work. And due to his ruthless business practices, there were front page cartoons lampooning him. Edith began to learn the world was a scary place. All the siblings and the parents developed nervous ailments and the lifelong processional in and out of sanatoriums began in order to treat their headaches, shattered nerves, and digestive ailments. In piecing together Edith's life, it is helpful to look at what other biographers have written about the male members of her family, the women not having received much attention thus far. Rockefeller biographer Ron Chernow writes, Junior developed an upside-down worldview in which the righteous Rockefeller household was always under attack by a godless, uncomprehending world. Similarly, the authors of the Rockefeller Century surmised that a childhood perpetually concerned with introspective soul-searching and striving to perfect one's conduct left Junior with both a lifetime creed and an initial fear of normal social conduct. This rings true for Edith as well. Education was prized in the family. Books were safe. Learning was safe. In later years, Edith was quoted as saying that reading was more important to me than eating. I must feed my mind more than my body. In an interview in the last years of her life, Edith recalled, as a little girl, every hour of my day was scheduled and efficiently occupied. In my primary school days, I had tutors in each subject that I was to study. I quickly began with foreign languages. I seemed to feel that spoken and written languages of different people offered gateways to the mind that made other studies not only less difficult, but gave to me easier access to the path of education which I was seeking to pursue. And so it was that before I was 10 years of age, I was proficient in three languages. And gradually and with most carefully considered outline of study, I was to become fluent in all the modern languages and an earnest, study, earnest student of ancient tongues. As I researched, it became obvious that while the family was close-knit and the three daughters clearly loved, it was Edith's brother, Junior, who always got the best of everything. The only son, the heir apparent. When Junior was a teenager, father created a private school for him and other like-minded young men. Two of the boys who joined Junior in these studies were Harold, and Stanley McCormick, sons of Cyrus McCormick, the Reaper King. And young Harold, blue-eyed, fun-loving, whistling, captured Edith's fancy and slowly became part of the family. He proposed in 1895 and they set a date for late November. The wedding didn't go as planned, not even remotely, the details of that story are best saved for another day, but I'll just share with you that Harold came down with pleurisy, and instead of the large church wedding that Edith had been planning, 
they wed in his small hotel suite. And though the ceremony was planned for noon, a sudden fierce storm turned the New York City sky dark as midnight and the rain fell in torrents. Thunder and lightning seeming to express mother nature's displeasure. It wasn't the grandest of starts. The newlyweds spent three years in Council Bluffs, Iowa, where Harold learned the family business at McCormick Harvester. Years later, Edith would reflect on this time as perhaps the happiest in her life. She set about creating a household, ordering monogrammed handkerchiefs and linens, hiring staff, and beginning her assemblage of priceless antiques. Finally, finally allowed to spend money, she did so with gusto. Harold seemed to enjoy his work as salesman, putting his gregarious nature to good work. Their first child, John Rockefeller McCormick, was born in Iowa. Then they moved to Chicago where a second son, Harold Fowler McCormick Jr., to be called Fowler, was born. They purchased a home on the north side of the city, dubbed McCormickville, because so many of the relatives lived there, including Harold's mother, sister, and brother. The address was 1000 Lakeshore Drive. Edith called it the Bastion. It had a massive ornamental gate surrounding the property. It felt secure, truly secure. She could lock out the world. Harold and Edith set out to make it a show place, working with antique dealers to gather an astounding collection of treasures. One of Edith's prized possessions was the gilded silver dinner service Napoleon gave to his sister upon her marriage to Prince Borghese, 1600 pieces with a Borghese coat of arms. She had the entire set. She had some of Napoleon's actual chairs too in the dining room with his initials. Her bedroom was decorated in Louis XVI from the large canopy bed to the gilded dressing table and an elegant carved writing table. Her collection of fine laces was museum quality, many dating back to the 15th century and her jewels. She had some of the Russian crown jewels, 10 of Catherine the Great's emeralds spaced between some 1,000 diamonds. Her pearls, perfectly matched, were later appraised at 2 million. I wish I had a picture of those. <laughs> In her defense, Edith's grand plan was to turn her house into a museum after her death. She was amassing these treasures bringing them to this country so Chicago could have these showpieces. But in the meantime, she would enjoy them. Edith and Harold had a summer home built in Lake Forest. Dismissing designs from James Gamble Rogers and Frank Lloyd Wright, Edith wouldn't even glance at Wright's sketches. They settled on Charles Adams Platt, who constructed an Italian villa overlooking the lake. Sadly, because of events about to unfurl, this summer home, which they called Villa Turicum, would never really be lived in. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Analyze her as you will. The money was flowing out. 
jewels, antiques, portraits of both her and Harold, tapestries, and donations, so many donations. While her father and brother were primarily focused on education and medicine for their philanthropies at the time, Edith's focus was the arts. Music, theater, art, and most notably, opera. Edith and Harold were among a group of city leaders who spearheaded efforts to create an opera company in Chicago. Harold was president and Edith advised on programming and they poured huge amounts of money into the endeavor, often fronting the ticket revenue at the beginning of the season to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's millions today. They also wrote, they also underwrote over two dozen translations of operas into English and supported young composers. With their support, composer Ermano Wolf Ferrari wrote The Jewels of the Madonna and The Secret of Suzanne, and both became Chicago staples. In Edith's own words, it is only the cities which have reached a certain cultural height which have opera. From my point of view, opera is a proof of culture and therefore not to be considered as a luxury, but to be recognized as a biological necessity. For human development is measured by culture. Where there is no culture, there is no actual development. It was a busy time. By now, their house, the bastion, was full. There was a bustling contingent of 17 servants servicing the family, cooks, sewing ladies, charwomen, footmen, chauffeurs, and nurses and governesses for the children. Edith and Harold had five children, firstborn Jack and his brother Fowler would later be joined by three girls, Muriel, Editha, and Matilde. But delighted though they were with these descendants, it was likely the children that caused Edith's life to take a sharp turn. In 1902, Jack suddenly died of scarlet fever. And just a few years later, baby Editha passed away before her first birthday. These deaths changed them all. Harold called Jack's passing his crushing sorrow. And I suggest that for Edith, it aggravated the fears that she had been suppressing since childhood. She had always been wary of the outside world, strangers, noise, commotion. They had had threats of abduction and death. All of her siblings suffered nervous disorders, but these very real horrors came from inside. Nothing was safe. The world was rife with danger. Two of Harold's siblings had succumbed to madness. His older sister, Mary Virginia, suffered a mental break in her late teens, to which Harold had a front row seat. And despite their mother's horror at having to do so, Mary Virginia was eventually institutionalized for the rest of her life. And Harold's brother, Stanley, brilliant, full of promise, and destined for a life in the harvester business, so close in age to Harold that they had been raised essentially as twins, had been showing signs of emotional instability for some time. In 1904, right after his wedding to Catherine Dexter, Stanley suffered a critical emotional break. 
sent first to Boston McLean's Hospital and later installed in a family estate built in California. Stanley was diagnosed with dementia precox and vacillated between bouts of catatonia, bursts of aggression, and occasional periods of lucidity. Doctors surmised it was the pressure of his marriage to Catherine that caused the break, and she was never able to spend time with him again. Catherine, the first woman to graduate from MIT with a degree in biology, argued for decades for endocrine testing, but Stanley's doctors pushed her aside. Edith's sister, Bessie, suffered as well, forcing her husband, brilliant philosopher Charles Strong, to witness as she babbled incoherently and worried endlessly and needlessly of impoverishment. Bessie died in 1906 following a stroke. Harold and Edith were all too familiar with nervous ailments, as they called them. Surely they must have worried who would be next. And while now oldest child Fowler seemed healthy in all aspects, daughter Muriel had a volatile personality prone to extreme outbursts of, of temper, and youngest daughter Matilde suffered from res respiration difficulties from birth and required special treatment. There was plenty of worry to go around. Meanwhile, President McKinley was assassinated. Meanwhile, journalist Ida Tarbell wrote a scathing series about John Dee in McClure's magazine. Meanwhile, over 600 people died in a theater fire in Chicago. And meanwhile, the Titanic sank. Edith began to have panic attacks, first at the opera, then at a dinner party at Harold's brother Cyrus's house. It was all too much. They began to cancel social engagements with Edith taking refuge in her house in her bastion. She spent several hours a day outside in her garden taking the fresh air cure. Harold and Edith decided a vacation might help ease her shattered nerves. They started to plan a year-long trip around the world, but it became clear Harold couldn't be gone from International Harvester for so long, so it was pared down to six months. The planning was considerable. And finally, in June of 1912, they traveled to New York for the crossing. They had all three children and their governesses in tow, a nurse and Harold's mother, Nettie. But when they got to New York, Edith announced she could not board the steamer. Travel would become a lifelong challenge for Edith. Train rides and long car trips took tremendous emotional preparation and a fortitude Edith no longer had. Harold, a true McCormick in that he loved to tinker with mechanical things, was enamored by the new sport of aviation and thrilled in taking to the air in all manner of odd contraptions, even designing a few airplanes himself. He did once in earlier years manage to get Edith aboard for a few minutes, but she would never again fly. She did witness a few aviator deaths firsthand at the 1909 International Aviation Meet that Harold organized in Chicago, where stunt pilots fell to their deaths before the massive crowds. 
And crossing the Atlantic was a daunting process, especially after the Titanic. That summer of 1912, Edith announced a flat no, and the family expedition was canceled. She went to Dr. Andrew Ford Sanitarium outside of Ellenville, New York instead, but she was a reluctant patient. Harold wrote to Edith's father, I really believe this is the great place for Edith. The doctor, a splendid man, told me confidentially that if Edith would give him her heart, her interest, heart, and cooperation, that he could cure her in 10 weeks. But if she fights and opposes, the treatment would be of much, much less effect if any at all would be realized. The difficulty Edith has to contend with is the giving up of herself entirely to the treatment. This has always been her difficulty. Edith was no newcomer to sanitariums. She was an expert. Her tour of them began as a teenager when, as did her siblings, she was shipped off to them for several months pure, more years than not. This included a four-month stint at Dr. Silas Weir Mitchell's, where her condition seems to have been blamed on too much study, and the treatment was to do essentially nothing except for regular treats, regular talks with Dr. Mitchell. However, Edith had grown skeptical of these treatments as her anxieties always returned when she re-entered normal life. Enter Carl Jung. Harold's cousin, Medill McCormick, had worked with Jung on his dual demons of depression and alcoholism, and he provided a recommendation. As luck would have it, Jung happened to be at a conference at Fordham University, so Edith summoned him to the Rockefeller Estate in Pocantico, New York, at which time Jung agreed to take her on as a patient. In later years, in a letter to Dr. Smith Eli Jalief, Jung had this to say about Edith. She was such a case of latent schizophrenia and was very much on the edge when I treated her. She dreamt right at the beginning of her analysis of a tree stuck, struck by lightning and split in half. This is what one calls a bad symbol. It is interesting to note that, speaking of the estate at which Harold's brother Stanley was installed, complete with bars on the windows and locks on all the doors, was called Riven Rock because the property featured a large boulder split in half by a massive oak. Meanwhile, the McCormick clan, Harold, his sister Anita, and his mother Nettie, was begging Jung to get involved with Brother Stanley's case out in California. And notably, Jung met with Edith's father, John D. Unfortunately, this did not go well. Had the men found themselves to be of like mind, Edith's story might have turned out quite differently. Having gotten Jung to agree to work with her, Edith offered to buy a house in America for Jung and supply him with patients, but he insisted she would need to travel to Switzerland for treatment. This then was a problem. Crossing the Atlantic seemed an impossibility. Temporarily fortified by her sessions with Jung, Edith managed to return to Chicago to prepare for a longer voyage. Jung sent her Maria Maltzer, 
who dispatched to the United States for the express purpose of getting Edith ready for the crossing. In February, 1913, Edith and Harold traveled to New York to prepare for the crossing. Harold, ever the sportsman, also was participating in some national tennis tournaments. At this point, Edith determined Moltzer was not getting the job done and she demanded Jung return. He did so, traveling to New York for the sole purpose of escorting Edith to Zurich. After three weeks of daily sessions with Jung, Edith was somehow able to get on the Kohn Princess in Sicilia. Whether he utilized medication, hypnosis, or other techniques is unknown. Also traveling with them were Fowler and his tutor, Muriel and her guardian, and Edith's maid, Emmy. Harold had been called back to Chicago due to a lawsuit against International Harvester, and youngest daughter, Mathilde, stayed behind with him. The plan was for Harold and Mathilde to come over a month later. The plan was for Edith to stay a few months. The plan was for all to return by fall. But things didn't go according to plan. Edith and her traveling party were installed at the Hotel Bar au Lac in Switzerland, and she began her daily sessions with Jung at his home in nearby Kusnacht. Though no exact detailing of her treatment remains, it is likely to have included frequent dream analysis, journaling, mandala drawing, and to combat her imperial complex, perhaps time spent in domestic ta tasks, such as scrubbing the bathroom floor and taking up knitting and cooking. Her routine was to have her chauffeur drive her to Kusnacht and then walk back with the car following slowly right behind. The fresh air, daily exercise, and adherence to routine were key elements for her. Her driver, Emile Aman, later wrote a book about his experiences with her. I must state that it is impossible to verify the accuracy of his accounts. But he tells a tale of Edith walking home one day when a sudden rainstorm hit, he pulled alongside, assuming she would want a ride, but she waved him away, determined to adhere to her routine. The rain grew steadily stronger until her hat drooped under the weight, her dress clung to her as a bathing suit, and she strode through what he called rivers of water. True or not, it is a vivid image. Harold and Mathilde eventually followed in September, and Mathilde was installed in a sanatorium in the mountains of Davos. Edith thrived in Zurich. Freed from her social commitments, no longer responsible for two households or her family, she was able to focus on herself. Author Richard Knoll, a controversial writer to be sure, seems to have gotten this part right at least. Jung's magical world must have been tremendously attractive to Edith at that time. She had suffered the loss of two children and withdrawn emotionally from her husband and from her surviving children. She needed help and she found it in Zurich. She came alive for the first time. As he did with several of his intelligent women patients, Jung suggested a course of academic study for Edith. She took to this like a fish to water. 
The bulk of her time in Switzerland would be spent learning. She studied languages, having realized as a child that was a strength of hers, including Sanskrit. But it was quite a diverse program of studies, including history, philosophy, astronomy, music, and biology, with professors from the University of Zurich who conducted private lessons with her in the hotel. After Edith's death, an independent scholar analyzed her personal library. It contained over 15,000 volumes, enough to rival some university libraries and a tremendous collection of Kant, Nietzsche, and Goethe. It appears this lifelong study was begun in Zurich. In another letter, letter to father, Harold, now a believer in Jung's methods, wrote, in a word, Edith is becoming very real and true to herself and is seeking, and I am sure will succeed, to find her path. At any rate, she is in absolutely safe and trustworthy hands, for no finer man ever breathed than Dr. Jung. He has an intense admiration for Edith and yet recognizes that she is the toughest problem he ever had to deal with. At first, he was doubtful of success and questioned what he would find. Now he sees a wonderful personality to engage his thought and his very best and most conscientious efforts. He sees it as much worthwhile. Edith's stay in Zurich, intended for just a few months, would eventually grow to eight years. During this time, 1913 to 1921, Jung's ideas on psychological types grow from just two types, the introvert and the extrovert, to encompass subdivisions of the predominance of four psychological functions, thinking, feeling, sensation, and intuition. Edith was classified an introvert and was told to develop her feelings, while extrovert Harold was just the opposite. In another letter to father, Harold wrote, now I am learning a little the new way and I am trying to learn to think for I have always had a super abundance of feelings. With Edith, it's just exactly the other way. So it goes. Richard Knoll described Harold as having a first-rate temperament and a second-rate intellect. Harold was likable, outgoing, easy, the polar opposite of Edith. To develop his thinking skills, Harold began writing papers, one on the development of aviation, Another was a personality analysis of family friend, Woodrow Wilson. A third was entitled Cash Value of Ultimate Peace Terms, and his magnum opus was Via Passis, Harold's opinion on how the fighting now underway in Europe could be resolved. He shopped it around to foreign officials, but the State Department misconstrued it as advocating pacifism and demanded he stop. Harold and Edith were now in Jung's inner circle. Harold went on a 10-day walking trip that included Carl and Emma Jung, as well as Jung's mistress, Tony Wolf. Infidelity seemed to be commonplace in that community. Edith's chauffeur, Emile Amman, reported considerable partying in Harold's private suite. And Amman wrote that Edith told him, if your subconscious mind causes you to love more than one woman, you mustn't feel guilty. To be sure, you have to respect the existing laws until they are changed. However, psychoanalysis will soon be commonplace, and then human laws will be changed accordingly. 
Amon claims that he had an affair with Edith's maid, Emmy, which lasted several years until his wife demanded that he end it. The demands on Harold must have been considerable. He was under pressure from his McCormick siblings to return to International Harvester. He was helping oversee the psychological care of his brother Stanley and his sister Mary Virginia. Correspondence from John D. Rockefeller and other members of Edith's family indicates they were pressuring Harold to get Edith home. He made numerous trips back across the Atlantic to try to keep all his juggling balls in the air, trips that became ever more dangerous as the war escalated and the Germans bombed steamers. Clearly, Harold was happy in Jung's company. He wrote frequently to John D, assuring him they were not banqueting their time away. One letter ran nearly 2,000 words as he tried to explain Jung's philosophies. This is not a tabernacle of joy, but a shrine to which seekers only address themselves. And it is in this spirit that I have again postponed my sailing and that Edith still finds herself held. This is not a place which encourages remaining here beyond the right or normal time. But the whole question is one of degree at best. For no one who is really interested in analytical psychology and finds it of help ever drops it. Because if it is one thing, it is to be lived. And the more one studies, the more one is prepared to live on its basis. Harold wrote to his mother, Nettie, Dr. Jung grows on me all the time. You must know him sometime, and I hope he will come to America sometime to make us a visit. He would interest you with the many and profound things he knows. In a separate letter also to his mother, Harold wrote, Dr. and Mrs. Young come this evening to dinner. Edith has only seen Dr. Young once while I was away, and that was the morning before I arrived, when they went over some corrections Edith was making in the English proofs of some of Dr. Young's writing. Edith is improving every day and now is almost independent of Dr. Young's treatment. She is now once more almost entirely in contact with the world from which she had so much withdrawn. While Harold was practicing his thinking and having his parties, Edith was continuing her studies, underwriting translations of Jung's work into English and other languages, and putting her own two cents in, apparently, and supporting artists who had taken refuge in neutral Switzerland. In addition to composers such as Otto Luning and Philip Jarnach, Edith underwrote James Joyce for one and a half years as he wrote Ulysses. Edith's immediate circle contained a number of notable personalities, some of whom may already be familiar to you. I'll describe these individuals to give you a greater sense of the dynamics of this group. First up is Adolf Keller, a Swiss priest and friend of Jung's. Keller was one of the few theologians who sought to understand the life and behavior of Jesus in terms of analytical psychology. He had observed an increase in severe mental health problems, which he attributed to the spiritual upheavals of the time. In Keller's writings, he suggested that neurotic disorders such as hysteria, compulsive obsessive behavior, and anxiety were caused by psychic disorders and therefore required psychic treatment. Keller's wife was a trained psychiatrist. 
According to Keller's biographer, he said, one day Rockefeller's daughter stood in the Lavacha Stuba, his study, and said, I would like to see human beings. For an entire year, she, she, accompanied me, hmm, she accompanied me on my visits to the small alleys in the Shipfa, the poor quarter, where I dragged her by the hand up putrid staircases and passageways so that she was forced to take out her smelling salts on reaching the top. Thus, she became acquainted with the lives of other people and with the phenomenology of poverty. Keller was a member of Jung's Committee on Psychological Types, which also included Tony Wolfe and the second person of interest, Emil Metner. The older brother of Nicholas Metner, the talented composer and pianist, Emil was a Russian music critic, editor of a publishing house, and theorist of symbolism. He'd arrived in the safe haven of Zurich in 1914 to be analyzed by Jung, who referred him to Maria Mozart. Metner and Edith became friends, and he convinced her to finance his Russian translations of Jung's work. Deep in Jung's circle, Metner claims to have had affairs with both Tony Wolfe and her sister. Let's put a pin in Metner for now, as his big part comes a little later in this story. Edith cemented her spot in Jung's circle by being the catalyst for his psychological club. Jung had run an informal club for years, a group that would gather to hear lectures and foster discussions, but Edith put money on the table for a physical location for the club, a place that would offer not only meeting spaces, but a restaurant and rooms for rent. She found a property in Feldbach outside of Zurich. A railroad ran through it. Originally, she thought she could relocate the tracks until others talked her out of it, and she settled for a villa at at one Löwenstrasse, the expensive part of Zurich. Edith rented it for a two-year period and provided a, host, a hostess, a cook, three servants, and a workman. The trouble was, she didn't have the cash. Of the $120,000 needed, she had to borrow $80,000 from the bank. Edith's money management skills weren't the best. When income tax was introduced in 1913, it caused her some trouble. And by 1919, she owed $140,000, about 2.4 million today. She began selling off some of her securities to pay her debts. In a common refrain, she again asked her father for more standard oil stocks. As a woman of 43, I should like to have more money to help with. There are causes in which I am interested, which are uplifting and of such importance to my development, which I cannot help as I should like to because I have not the money. I hope that you will see that as a woman of earnestness of purpose and singleness of spirit, I am worthy of more confidence on your part. But Edith had burned her bridges with her father. He had lost patience with her many years in Zurich, with her repeated refusals to come home and with her completely hands-off parenting style, and critically, with her abandonment of her Baptist upbringing. Edith's letters home were carefully worded so that by 1914, there was no mention of God, rather a guiding spirit. This little word I'm sending to you for your birthday with much love. 
I know and have felt deeply what this last year has meant to you. We all have our hard problems to face. This is living. And I feel that you will rise above the things which are difficult for us now and realize that we must all fulfill our greater destiny. The great divine guiding spirit cannot do things wrong. When Edith refused to return to the States for her parents' 50th wedding anniversary, and subsequently was absent when her mother died, the hole that she had dug deepened. I know that mother's spirit is going on in a beautiful development. So while I am sad that I shall not see her again, I am happy for her. She goes on to quote a Chinese philosopher, we should be like water flowing on, no matter what obstacles have to be overcome, either getting over them or getting around them, but some way or other always flowing on. There is no mention of God. Harold cemented his spot as favorite McCormick when he, not Edith, was at Mother Seti Rockefeller's bedside when she died. He'd happened to be in the States for his nephew's wedding. When he returned to Zurich, the war was ratcheting up, so he traveled on a steamer with 142 horses and only eight passengers. This time he would resign his position at International Harvester and stay in Zurich for three years. By 1916, Edith was more outspoken about the differences between her and her father. You on your path have your philosophy and your religion which guide you. I on my path have my philosophy and my religion which guide me. That they differ makes no harm because we have love which makes the bond between us. I respect the things that you do which I cannot understand and likewise, you respect my individuality and my point of view. So love keeps us close and warm. So when Edith appealed to her father for more money to help, off, to help offset her investment in the psychological club, he asked for a detailed accounting of her expenses. She provided a partial list, unaware that her Swiss bank was providing regular updates to her father and brother behind her back. In describing her efforts to support Jung's work, she wrote, this work is unique in the history of mankind and its far reaching values are inestimable. Father restructured his giving to Edith as well as her sister Alta, setting up trusts for the women in which they received approximately $72,000 worth of interest each year but couldn't touch the principal. The trust was run by a committee of men, including Junior, Harold, and Alta's husband, Parmalee. Meanwhile, father was steadily moving his personal fortune into Junior's hands, giving him well over 400 million, as well as the freedom to manipulate the principal. Edith's frustration was obvious. Dear father, I sometimes wish that you could forget that I am a woman so that you might give to me some of the advantages which John has in administrations. I am very capable and everyone finds me resembling you. But the opening of the Psychological Club in February, 1916 was a triumph for Edith. Before his opening speech, Jung presented her with an inscribed pre-publication copy of his Seven Sermons to the Dead. According to Sanu Shandasani, Jung recalled that he wrote it on the occasion of the founding of the Psychological Club and regarded it as a gift 
to Edith Rockefeller McCormick for founding the club. And in a letter to analyst Alphonse Mader, Jung wrote, the club is really originally an idea of Mrs. McCormick. Sigmund Freud may have been a bit jealous, writing in a letter to Hungarian psychoanalyst Sandor Ferenczi. Pfister writes that Rockefeller's daughter presented Jung with a gift of 360,000 francs for the construction of a casino, analytic institute, etc. So Swiss ethics has finally its sought-after contact with American money. There were 40 people at the initial meeting of the Psychological Club. Edith was designated the club owner. Emma Jung was the chair. Carl Jung was not an officer, just a member. Perhaps in exchange for Edith's generosity, or perhaps because he genuinely believed that she understood his methods and philosophies, Jung anointed her as analyst. Edith wrote to her father, New patients are coming to me all the time, and I've had some 50 cases now. I hear in a year 12,000 dreams. This work is very concentrated and very difficult, but so intensely interesting. It is so beautiful to see life and joy come into the eyes of those who have come to me so hopeless and seemingly lost. She was clearly trying to strengthen their relationship. Writing in 1917, I wish sometimes that you would let me get nearer to you, you, your real self, so that your heart would feel the warmth of a simple human soul. Perhaps you will let me someday. In a preface to his paper, Individuation and Collectivity, Jung explained his purpose for the club. It is an attempt to work together as analyzed men. How someone analyzed reacts to someone unanalyzed and vice versa is sufficiently known, but how the analyses go together is unknown. It is highly important to know this because we must at times arrange our practical analysis in consequence of this. We are acquainted in analysis up till now only with a function of the personal collective, analyst and patient, just as we have learned much about the individual function, but we know nothing about the collective function of individuals and its conditions. Because of this, one must make this practical attempt because no other possibilities to have this experience are present. But all did not go smoothly with the psychological club. Socially mixing analysts with emotional fragile, emotionally fragile patients was not easy. There were differing visions for what the club should be as well as financial issues. Let's turn first to Fowler McCormick's recollections. Fowler made numerous trips to Zurich during his time as a Groton student and later during his time at Princeton and after. Fowler would become quite close with Jung, a relationship that lasted decades. The idea of the club was to get people together who were interested and had been in analysis so that they could have a social life and not just continue to be introverted by themselves, etc. I do know that father and mother were very instrumental in helping to get the club started. And I also remember very clearly father feeling how little most of the members at that time, not speaking of Dr. and Mrs. Jung and not speaking of Miss Wolf to my knowledge, knew about social life and how to have a sociable time. Father used to laugh 
about some of the efforts to have joyous evenings and how they fell flat. It was all considered to be trivial and too light. As head of the entertainment committee, outgoing Harold was helping organize table tennis and billiards competitions. All the games were mild, including a keyhole game where members of the club would try to identify which other member was peering through the keyhole. In October 1916, Emma Jung sent around a circular to all members asking their, club, asking their views. And Harold responded, I believe that unconsciously there is too much of atmosphere of rank observed in the club, the mental rank and the rank between Analytica and Analysand on the one hand, and as between people in various stages of analysis on the other. The mantle of caste should be laid aside at the threshold of the club and the natural, simple human relations assumed in its real aspect. According to Barbara Hanna, Tony Wolf told me it started off on two luxurious lines, rather like an American club, and thus its restaurant and rooms proved too expensive for anyone to be able to use them. But this slightly unreal start in the most expensive site in the center of Zurich was soon given up, and a comparatively modest house was bought in the Gemeindestrasse. The Gemeindestrasse location would stick, and the club is still there today. There were other aspects to Edith and Harold's life in Switzerland at this time. Harold had been appointed a procurement officer for the war, handling requests for supplies. Word was out that the McCormicks were in town and they were bombarded by financial requests, such as when the American consulate general asked them for help for 40 American refugees from Turkey who were in dire need or when they hosted 59 American POWs for dinner at the hotel bar lock. The men had been captured and thrown aboard the steamer Yarrowdale as prisoners and subsequently spent three months in a prison camp. The McCormicks also provided 50 francs and new, new clothing for each man. But the most dramatic event they may have been involved with involved a French flying ace. Lieutenant Eugene Gilbert had been forced to make an emergency landing on Swiss soil. He was kept under guard in a barracks in Zurich, but one night the guard mysteriously wandered off, leaving Gilbert unguarded. A getaway car whisked him to Lausanne, then a high-speed motorboat rushed him over Lake Geneva to Evian, a French city on the far side. While nothing could be proven as to the McCormick's involvement, with Harold's interest in aviation and all manner of speedy vehicles, there was much speculation. Furthermore, Lieutenant Gilbert had been seen in their company at the, at the Bauer Lock. Harold returned to Chicago in 1918 to assume his role at the head of International Harvester. And this is when the family really began to fall apart. In a story worthy of its own opera, and in fact, it would serve as the basis for the love triangle in the movie Citizen Kane. An aspiring opera singer tracked down Harold in search of a part with the Chicago Grand Opera, and in no time at all, he was smitten. Her name was Ghana, Ghana Valska. Hideous name, hideous voice, but beautiful. She'd just been widowed by her second husband, a wealthy New York doctor. Having met Ghana in New York, 
and started some sort of relationship in the States. Harold engineered to cross the Atlantic aboard the same steamer, the Aquitania. Also on board was bachelor Alexander Smith Cochran, the carpet king. Both Harold and Smith Cochran wooed Ghana on board with Harold asking if she would marry him if he was single. She declined. Harold continued on to Zurich and begged Edith for a divorce. She refused. He persisted and eventually Edith acquiesced. Harold rushed to Paris to tell Ghana the good news only to find that she had married the carpet king in the meantime. Brokenhearted, Harold wrote, I am suffering, I am tortured. He returned to Zurich to patch up his ailing, mar his ailing marriage. Harold wrote to Edith's father, aware that he may have heard rumors and wording his comments carefully so as not to burn bridges with his father-in-law and business associate. I have had a hard summer here with many problems of one sort or another, but I am coming out of them and through some. I look forward to having a good talk with you and it is fine to feel we can meet up in understanding and in exchange of views. And that is friendship or at least along the ro road toward it. Edith meanwhile was trying to overcome her travel phobia. Again here, chauffeur Aman tells engaging tales of her attempting to take ever longer train rides. He was instructed to race alongside the train from station to station in case she had to bail. <clears throat> in any case, after eight years in Zurich, Edith finally managed to return to the States. Young refused to accompany her this time, and it is believed it took three doctors and a bill of $50,000 to get her to France and then across the ocean. One, a Dr. Joseph Hartman, traveled with her all the way to Chicago. Also with her was a friend from Zurich. According to Emile Metner's biographer, she had asked Metner to come back with her, but he refused, assuming that to accept that offer implied eventual marriage. Their relationship became embittered. Edith had been footing the, fill, footing the bill for Metner's translations, both Russian and French, of Jung's writings as well as paying him for running the library at the club for which Harold had paid the initial costs. But his translations ran into problems and behind schedule. Edith eventually stopped payments to Metner. Metner's biographer Lundgren, Marcus Lundgren maintained, at times he would still regret not having married her and the Rockefeller millions, while at other times he would write violent tirades to Anna, denouncing her as a rabid female, a cold and unreceptive maternal surrogate who deserved only to be whipped. From my point of view, it seems Edith dodged a bullet with Metner. Instead, she brought back Edwin Krenn, a young Austrian who claimed to be an architect. He had come to Zurich for analysis and developed a lifelong relationship with Edith. Chauffeur Amon claims they were lovers, but that would be a subject of considerable speculation for years to come. Whatever their relationship, Edwin would be the loyal friend that Edith had lacked so far. Edith intended to visit her father in New York after disembarking the steamer, 
but he refused to welcome Edwin. After several rounds of telegrams, Edith would return to Chicago without having seen her father. Their relationship had been damaged beyond true repair. Approached by reporters upon her return, Edith made it clear <clears throat> that she intended to utilize her Lake Forest summer home, Villa Turicum, as a center for analytic psychology, something which never came to be. But she did continue her own work as analyst and spoke passionately about Jung and his methods. Let us compare the mind to a house and its thoughts to the furniture it contains. Some of the furniture is unsightly, covered with dust, broken or ugly. We must clear it all out, throw it away, and the mind is clear. But we must replace this furniture or the house is useless. There were considerable challenges for Edith. Despite the fact that Edith had returned to the States in the hopes of mending the relationship, Harold wanted a divorce. And he assembled a powerhouse legal team, including Clarence Darrow. The financial settlement in which Edith had to buy Harold out of both of their houses would be a staggering financial blow to her for years. Harold was still hoping to snag Ghana Walska, whose marriage, her third now, to Carpet King Alexander Smith Cochran had fallen apart. In preparation for his union with this younger woman, Harold underwent a controversial gland transplant intended to rejuvenate his libido. He swore everyone to secrecy, but someone had tapped his phone lines and it became front page news across the country. <clears throat> he was subsequently asked to resign from International Harvester, which he did before traveling to Europe to marry Ghana. Another challenge for Edith was that her youngest daughter, Mathilde, who had been raised primarily in the Davos Sanatorium, had fallen in love with her riding instructor, Max Ozer, a Swiss gentleman, roughly 30 years her senior. 18-year-old Mathilde did marry Max, much to Edith's dismay, and that was front page news as well. Edith's life after returning from Zurich was markedly different than pre-1913. She entertained far less frequently and generally only when special guests, such as Prince William of Sweden or Queen Marie of Romania, were in town. Her entertainment consisted of opera, chamber concerts, theater, and that new diversion, movies. The newspapers followed her movements closely and always reported on where she went, who she was with, frequently Edwin, and what she wore. On one occasion, she made the reporters giddy when she announced at a dinner party that she was the reincarnation of Anka S.N. Potten, King Tut's child bride. Having given land to the Cook County Forest Preserve District for the express purpose of building a zoo, Edith was somewhat involved with the planning for Brookfield Zoo. She also sat on the planning board for the Women's World Fairs, which took place in the mid-1920s. She was considered the keenly intellectual member of the group. But her main enterprise was her own real estate firm, which she started with Edwin and an old Ukrainian friend of his, Edward Dato. Edith provided the funds for Kren and Dato, and Edwin and Edward handled the business end. They started with one salesman, a taxi driver, 
who sold lots that Edith owned adjacent to what was to become Brookfield Zoo. But within a couple of years, they had grown to one of the nation's largest real estate firms, employing hundreds of realtors. They sold lots to over 16,000 Chicagoans for over $26 million. They even started plans for a utopian community near Kenosha, Edithton. While the blueprints called for luxury living on the lake, it also included plans for a national university, a place where professors from colleges around the country could come in the summer to learn from each other and recharge their batteries. It included its own radio station and airport, as well as sporting, sporting facilities large enough to host future Olympic games. Sadly, it would never be built. Edith continued the studies she'd begun in Zurich, setting aside time each day for her interests in other languages, world religions, and philosophy. She also continued her collecting, at one point, purchasing a Byzantine New Testament upon the request of Professor Edgar Goodspeed of the University of Chicago. The interior dated from the 1200s, and the cover in hammered silver was added in the 1500s. It was remarkable for the number of illuminations that it contained, nearly 100. It set her back $25,000 plus an additional 16,000 that allowed color copies to be made for study purposes. When it arrived, a representative from the Newberry Library declared it marked the beginning of a new era in the cultural life of the city. Edith had carved out a new life for herself. Despite the shame of the divorce, Harold's scandalous surgery, and the fact that her family had abandoned her, her children siding with Harold, and her father and brother disapproving of her life choices. Perhaps traumatized by the deaths of little Jack and infant Editha, Edith never again really played a typical parenting role. In part, that was due to the role of an upper-class mother at that time. Her job was to hire the best nannies and tutors she could find. But her lack of involvement with her children led to weak ties later in life when she might have benefited from closer relationships. She once stated, I am firmly convinced that perfect freedom and in individual development is absolutely necessary. I have, I have observed that in the upbringing of my own children. I might argue she took this a bit too far. In addition to Mathilde marrying a man nearly 30 years older, Fowler also had a scandalous wedding when he married Fifi Stillman, the mother of his college roommate. And daughter Muriel took an entirely novel approach to relationships when she became posthumously engaged to the son of Lake Forest friends, young Alexander McKinlock, who had died by sniper fire in the First World War. Later, she would marry a much older man and settle in Bar Harbor, Maine, Edith did not attend any of her children's weddings. She continued her role as analyst, seeing patients in her bastion. She called it surgery of the soul and once said that studying dreams was the only way to pierce the unconscious mind and see what it contains. Chicago Daily News reported, Mrs. McCormick's belief in psychoanalysis was immutable. She never accepted assent from anyone whom she helped even from the patients who came daily with attending nurses. Each morning she would sit quietly 
allowing the patient to pour out all his thoughts and nodding sympathetically in silence. When he was quite emptied of all disquieting ideas, she would gently su suggest constructive thoughts to take their place. Carl Jung was quoted in the Chicago papers as saying, Mrs. McCormick was cured years ago. She is a splendidly balanced woman who took advantage of her years of residency in Zurich to store away an immense amount of knowledge in all fields from Sanskrit to psychology. Mrs. McCormick today is one of the most learned women I know. I have made her as perfect as possible according to the qualities with which she is gifted by nature. I could not make her any different as I do not claim to create anything, but I certainly claim that she is perfectly balanced according to her nature. The paper went on to surmise that her unhappy marriage was the basis for her depression. Edith's story does not end well. When the real estate, real estate market slowed in 1927, followed by the stock market crash of 1929, she was left holding thousands of acres of land no one would buy. Many of her investors defaulted on their mortgages and instead of evicting them, she absorbed the blow herself. Once perhaps the nation's richest woman, due to the terrible divorce settlement and the unforeseen national crash, Edith was left begging her father and brother for funds. They refused, saying time and again, I regret that it would not be in your best interests for us to provide this assistance. Breast cancer delivered the final blow. A month before her death, Edith's brother set her up in a suite at the Drake Hotel, provided she fire her staffs and close up her two houses. I believe she could see the bastion out the window. Edith died in August, 1932, at the age of 59. On the day of her funeral, thousands lined the streets to honor Chicago's patron saint. Her brother and family must have been stunned to see the affection for Edith, the acknowledgement of all that she'd given to the city, opera, a zoo, community theater, real estate, an infectious disease institute that she and Harold founded after their first son Jack's death, helped curb scarlet fever. Once perhaps the nation's richest woman, Edith was bankrupt at the time of her death, having spent and given away her tremendous fortune. Her carefully collected belongings were auctioned off, sold for pennies on the dollar during the depression. Emma Young wrote to Harold, the news of Mrs. McCormick's death was a great shock to me, and thinking of her brought up so many reminiscences that I must send you a word of sympathy. In my thoughts, she will always, as you too, be linked with a very intense and important phase in my life, and I shall always be grateful to have had the privilege of coming to know her and you, and of all the stimulating and precious contributions to my own development I got through this relationship. And of course, the club, will always be a living and lasting expression of her great and generous personality to which we owe it. John D. Rockefeller's biographer, Ron Chernow, described Edith as a dreamer caught up in the cult-like atmosphere of Jung's practice. Yet in the Rockefeller family, she was a pioneer, the first to peer into the mysteries of human nature and confront social inhibitions and moral restraints 
that had long been held sacrosanct by the family. I'll leave you with the words of author Richard Knoll. You may take issue with much of what he wrote, but this part seems likely accurate. Without her, he might never have succeeded. With her, he became known to the entire world. Yet despite her own celebrity, few know of the fateful collaboration of the Rockefeller psychoanalyst and C.G. Jung. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andrea. You've covered a lot of ground, uh, a remarkable life and a remarkable woman. So thank you very much. We'll take a, uh, take a bit of a break at the moment, uh, maybe 10 minutes. Yeah, so uh, I would like to introduce both of you first, and then we can move right into your talking a bit and then move into some conversation. So uh, Kenan McKee did her early work social uh, early work uh, specialized in child psychology, holding positions at the Institute of Juvenile Research at the University of Illinois and in the high-risk infancy clinic at Cook County Hospital, where she followed high-risk infant development for the first six years of their lives. After training in analytical psychology, Dr. McKee went into private practice, seeing both children and adults. She is a senior training analyst in the analyst training program here at the Chicago Institute. Victoria <clears throat> is an academic, scholar, writer, editor, educator, and social environmental conservation philanthropist. A Chicago native, She's a graduate of Harvard University, followed by applied biology graduate work at Cambridge University, University College of London, and studies in environmental economics and Pacific, <clears throat> and Pacific Graduate Institute, where she got her PhD in Jungian depth um, psychology. As a career international environmental conservationist, social justice advocate, an eco-psychologist. She currently serves on the Institute's board and as Midwest Regional Alumni Coordinator for Pacifica Graduate Institute. She and her husband also participate in their eight generation family farm in central Illinois with three daughters. So welcome Kenan and Victoria. Let's turn it over to you, Kenan, uh, for some uh, initial comments. You're muted, Kenan, you're muted. Thank you, okay, that makes a difference. Uh, I wanna first uh, thank Andrea for writing this book. Uh, I knew nothing about uh, Edith Rockefeller McCormick and uh, in reading the book, I became completely fascinated by this woman who, made such a contribution culturally and also to our profession of psychology. And, and yet we don't know much about her. Now we do. <laughs> so thank you, Andrea. My first um, look at Edith was to try to understand 
both her inherent personality and uh, how she had been environmentally conditioned growing up. So that's sort of what, what her childhood had done to impact her and most especially in creating this, um, the strength of the phobia that she really was never able to heal. But since she's not alive, it was a little hard to really uh, be accurate about inherent personality. Um, so in reading biographies of John D. Rockefeller, her father, once in a while, women in the family would be mentioned. Um, so I started wondering if Edith didn't inherit um, some of the strength of the women in her family, but because of the times that they were living in, no one was ever able to break through until Edith came along. So um, Edith's paternal grandmother, Eliza Davison, who married her grandfather, Bill Rockefeller, um, was noted as a, it, as a real uh, intellect. And she, she apparently, like her mother-in-law, had married the wrong man. Um, and so it's noted that the two would get together to talk about um, things that interested them intellectually. Both of them had husbands who were wanderers and um, the women found intellectual curiosity and intellectual solace in, in each other. Then came Edith's mother, Seti Spellman. Um, Seti came from a, the, a wealthy family. Um, ultimately, that family lost its wealth in a bank uh, closure. But Seti was valedictorian of her class in high school. And the speech she wrote, uh, the valedictorian speech was entitled, I Can Paddle My Own Canoe. So she was a real advocate um, for women and believing that women could make their own way on their own. She uh, attended one of the first institutes that allowed women to study. And uh, there she was the, the, she was in charge of the campus literary magazine. She wrote articles um, that were very influential about things of the time. She studied music at the Cleveland uh, Institute and she and her sister both became teachers, lived on their own and supported themselves. So there was a precedence in the women in the family um, for 
Edith being who she was as a real intellect. Now, that, that um, uh, changed, I suppose we'd say, uh, with Seti once she married uh, John Dee. And just before I say anything about that, uh, Edith did believe that her personality was somewhat like her father's. And so she has the intellect coming from the women's side and the strength of personality coming from her father. And that came together in a certain personality before she was environmentally influenced uh, by her growing up. Um, when I worked at Cook County Hospital, there was a, uh, Barry Brazelton at Harvard had developed a test for infants at 48 hours of age. And I used to give that test to, to infants. It had been developed to really do studies on infants, but what, it, what was discovered was that the test brought out inherent personality. And you can absolutely see an inherent personality in an infant at that age. And there's been no environmental influence whatsoever. So Edith came into the world with a, a strength of character. What seems to have happened, and Andrea really did a beautiful job of describing uh, her childhood. Um, John D. just wouldn't let the children uh, be on their own at all. So they were, I would more say, imprisoned at home. Um, so they were homeschooled. Um, they could have friends. How they made these friends was a question to me. Um, they could have friends over to the house, but they could not go out and go to other friends' homes. Um, in addition, as Andrea pointed out, the Rockefellers were well known. They were hated by uh, lots of people in the United States. And, and the children ultimately became aware of that. The rigid moral and uh, religious values that were represented by Edith's parents um, were just binding for anyone who was trying to grow and develop that inherent personality. So the restrictions were severe on Edith as, as she grew up. Also, it seems that Seti, her mother, really fell into a whole different position once she was married. So this, this woman who believed that women could make their own way um, fell into the position of supporting her husband and his career. And apparently she was a business advisor to him, but she 
no longer saw herself as independent. And I don't think she would have uh, in the time that she lived. So Edith grew up in, in this position. And one of the questions I had was whether her phobia of traveling didn't get created in this very restrictive environment. So where she wasn't allowed really to leave the house and where she knew it was not popular to be a Rockefeller, um, why, why would she want to travel? Because it would feel dangerous, restrictive, and she didn't know how to anyway. I mean, what, what we are able to do in our childhoods of running around the neighborhood or um, being in other friends' houses, uh, just being outside playing in the neighborhood, she couldn't do. So she didn't know how to move around. And that seemed to have been so deeply rooted in her that um, nothing could change it. So Edith, um, when she finally was able to meet Jung, and as Andrea pointed out, uh, it was through a McCormick relative who worked with Jung, um, Jung, it seems, was the good father to Edith. She, she had a father who, who really didn't care who she was uh, or what talent she had. Uh, she was just to have followed the rules, followed the religion, followed the household rules, and do what she was told. Jung was a totally different man. He surrounded himself by women who were intellectually curious and intellectually capable of exploring areas that Jung found interesting, but so did these women. And, and that must have just been like for Edith being moved into a garden where she could finally put down roots, grow and blossom. Um, why would she have wanted to leave in a couple months uh, when, um, when she was finally being recognized, encouraged, supported to develop what inherently she had the capacity to develop, she wouldn't have wanted to leave. I mean, she had really found her place. And so with Harold, as Andrea points out, um, Edith began to publish, uh, pay for the publishing of all of Jung's works and to help make him known. And the psychological club was really 
her thing. So I want to read something from Deidre Bear's um, biography of Jung on this um, psychology club, where uh, Deidre Bear is noting that at some point Jung left the club. I think that was a bit because um, he wasn't really interested in the other ideas that were being presented. He really did want to use the club as, as a means of promoting his own ideas. So Dieter Bear writes, after Jung returned to the Psychological Club of Zurich in 1924, it became an organization whose sole reason for being was to provide a forum for his evolving psychology. In retrospect, all the other members who thought the club had been established to provide a forum for the objective appraisal of theory in general had never assessed the situation clearly. No matter how inclusive their statements at the time of incorporation, Edith and Harold McCormick were devoted proselytizers of Jung's technique and method. And from the beginning, their primary intention was to provide him with a forum for the research, practice, and demonstration of his ideas. No doubt the enforced conviviality that was written into the club's statutes slowed the process of its becoming a platform for Jung. But like a naval shakedown cruise, the eight years from the club's founding to Jung's being in complete control were probably necessary to bring it into the fighting trim in which it operated from that time onward. All those who came to the club came to hear Jung and the two were synonymous from that time onward. It seems that Edith really did bring Jung into the forefront of psychology. And in a certain way made him so known to the world that her contribution to Jung's presence really cannot be underestimated. So Victoria, you want to pick up this from your perspective? Thank you, Kenan. Um, that, that helps to keep amplifying our, our presentation today. And um, thank you, Andrea, as well, for a marvelous introduction uh, for all of us here at the Institute. Um, she really is the missing piece that, that we have been um, lacking in terms of our understanding um, of Jung, not only in Chicago, but, but Jung, I think, just in translation. And my interest here is in bringing in some of the archetypal themes that, that I perceive to be at work here. Um, I, I see the intersection of the anima and animus operating here um, in, in a kind of wounded eros as 
as we have seen emanating from this repressed uh, childhood that she had, a mother and father complex and a child orphan archetype. Um, if we're quickly just going to define anima and animus for everyone on the same page, I, you know, anima was something that, that Jung coined these terms, anima and animus, that refer to the indwelling masculine and feminine energies that we all possess. And specifically, the anima is thought to be the feminine part of a man's soul. The animus refers to the masculine part of a female's soul. And so essentially, these are bridges to the personal unconscious that we encounter mainly through dreams and, and face the inner attitude of the soul. Um, so Jung, it's interesting to me that Jung only wrote about marriage once in 1925 as a psychological relationship. Um, it's interesting given his life emphasis on the archetype of union um, and the coniuntio that Jung wrote in this paper that he believed crisis in a marriage emerges from differences in each partner's rate of adaptability to marriage and a disparity in spiritual development. He formulated the marital dyad psychologically as a setup where one partner was the container and the other was contained. Jung felt that similar, simpler personalities connected with more complex personalities. And this allowed for the simpler personality to be wholly contained in the marriage and to spend much energy uneasily tracking down the various and sundry disassociated parts of the partner with the more complex personality. The container, on the other hand, sought the unifying presence of the simpler personality. So we can sort of begin to see where Edith and Harold might fit into this construct. One cannot help but wonder too, though, if this is how Jung experienced his relationship with Emma, at least at some points along the way. Note that Jung's use of terms container and contained predate Bion by some decades, and each had his own rationale for employing those terms. In Jung's case, the terms are much used, are used in a much more general way. Bion's usage was more precise, but both appear to be in service of getting at the phenomenon of psychological discord. This unconscious marital arrangement of container and contained worked for a couple until a crisis or crises emerge for either or both partners. It is from this unconscious state that consciousness and the chance for a psychological relationship emerges. But Jung explained, there is no birth of consciousness without pain. Jung believed that these crises often emerging at the midpoint of life were the clarion call announcing the beginning of the withdrawal of archetypal projections and a move toward greater consciousness 
for either or both partners. In this way, the two who had become one in the unconscious marriage now work to become two again as the marriage, probably dissolving in this case, demands a more conscious psychological relationship. Jung later wrote about marriage as a quaternity with inherent transference phenomena. Much as for Freud, Jung saw early parental forces as lying at the heart of marital discord. He writes, how many marriages are wrecked for years and sometimes forever because he sees his mother in his wife and she her father in her husband and neither ever recognizes the other's reality. For Jung, the individuation process in marriage consisted in each partner trying to become aware of the existence and interplay of these unconscious forces. After his split with Freud in 1912, Jung goes on to form his own school of analytical psychology, which attracts many followers, as we know, such as Edith. I think it's a very interesting synchronicity that Edith enters his life a year after the split with Freud. Um, I also just want to comment briefly on the idea that Jung was the good father except Jung was only three years older than Edith, and they were essentially contemporaries. So I see him as more of a kind of a soulmate uh, partner in, in crime, so to speak. Um, Jungian analyst Polly Jung Eisendrath has spent decades exploring a couple's connection using the lens of the Lady Ragnall, King Arthur, Sir Gawain tale. She posits that it is the marriage contract itself that casts the spell of the negative mother complex that can be a root cause for a couple's discontent and divorce, despite today's more egalitarian arrangements between couples. Brides are given in marriage by their fathers to their husbands and therein lies both the imbalance and the archetypal constellation. For no matter how rational partners may be in entering this cultural institution, they will not be able to avoid its unconscious meaning. Since medieval times, the marriage contract was such that a woman becomes the man's possession. Thus a man unconsciously attempts to possess what he cannot own his bride's freedom. Archetypal deadlock can be seen in many considering divorce. After divorce, Edith clearly sought to restore full sovereignty to herself and to re recover her own disowned and disavowed animus masculine side. Author and deaf psychologist Jeanette Paris has suggested a view of marriage through three primary mythological relationships with their corresponding themes, Peleus and Thetis, imbalance, Zeus and Hera, equality, and Hephaestus and Aphrodite, infidelity. So Hillman also used, James Hillman, the Old Testament creation story to consider the role of betrayal in marriage which is relevant here. 
he believed that the temenos of the marriage relationship invites a return to the Garden of Eden and the constellation of an initial primal trust in each partner. But not only did he believe that one longs to be contained in perfection by another who can never let one down, he also felt that one longs for a situation where one is protected from one's own treachery and ambivalence, one's own archetypal Eve. Betrayal is necessary, therefore, for conscious life to begin. And the realization of a broken promise can be a breakthrough to another level of consciousness. For Hillman, betrayal had archetypal underpinnings and is both necessary and inevitable. The masculine logos is not more powerful than life. He warned that no matter what vows one took or how hard one might try, life has a way of doing whatever it does. Hillman's temenos was masculine in nature, and the elusive desire for the safety of Logos always ends in disappointment. He believed that not only can you not trust Eve, you cannot even trust yourself in psychological life. He justified the prevalence of betrayal as a necessary precursor to a fuller realization of trust and forgiveness. I want us to consider this potentially in our discussion uh, in terms of whether Edith ever did forgive Harold. In considering divorce or marriage, end, or the, or marriage ending as myth, Hillman wrote that a betrayal ends nothing in the relationship between the couple and only, only serves to destroy the illusion of that initial primal trust. The couple remains in relationship, bound archetypally as betrayer and betrayed. Now the fidelity between the two is to the betrayal and to the maintenance of the bitterness, resentment, and hurt that serves to keep the two in conjunction. Hillman saw this movement from the initial establishment of primal trust to betrayal and then towards forgiveness as a movement of consciousness. He believed that these movements take place on the dark side of the psyche, often over a long course of bitterness and fighting. And as we see with Edith and Harold, there was a lot of back and forth. Despite his emphasis on the masculine, Hillman believed that all this work was in service of the development of the anima. Extending his thought from a masculine viewpoint one might say the work is to reconstitute Eve in oneself. Returning to the garden in the Old Testament creation story, if a man can psychologically take back his rib, it frees both partners from the burden of maintaining an idealized version of Eve. Von Franz calls this the withdrawal of the projection. Or it could also be viewed, in my opinion, Feeling as an archetypal splitting of the notion of an ending of, for the very purpose of individuation to truly become the heroine of her own life, in Edith's case. In this way, a marriage ending or, or death, the marriage death, is perhaps not literal at all, 
but is rather an initiation, a radical shift in imagination. So for Edith, her divorce, while it may have been unwelcome consciously, it did begin a period of her life where she was dramatically different from the first period during her marriage. She had reluctantly crossed over a new threshold of becoming more fully able to claim herself within herself while Eros was still burning up on the other side of her marriage. Eros I see here as the God of beginnings, but is also paired with chaos who leads to misrule and disorder. This Dionysian dismemberment forces Edith to rescue and reassemble her identification with the child orphan archetype, seeing as she never sees her parents again after she comes home from Zurich. And, and, and then she has to become her own parent. Harold has rescued her from the repressed and restrictive life that she grew up in. He had rescued her, but then he released her to a more mature, albeit solitary destiny of self-determining relatedness. And in, in, to close, Jung says, it is moreover only in the state of complete abandonment and loneliness that we experience the helpful powers of our own nature. So I'd, I'd love to kind of toss it back to Arlo and perhaps continue the dialogue. Okay. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you very much. Um, you've both raised some interesting uh, conversations. So uh, we're going to turn and uh, move towards that. So Danielle is going to, uh, I think, handle uh, the uh, questions and comments from uh, participants. Uh, what we want you to do is to raise your hand uh, or raise the hand signal uh, so that Danielle knows you would like to comment or ask a question. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to engage in some conversation. So if you have some opinions that you want to express as well, uh, we invite you to take the time to do that. Danielle, anything additional? Uh, yes, so just uh, if you have a question, uh, please use the raise hand feature, the little button, you'll have to click it. And it will, um, once once you do that, I will un call on you to unmute your microphone and you can ask your question. Looks like we have Mary Doherty. Hi, good morning, Mary. Good morning. Unmute your mic, there you go. I, am I okay? I just want to. I just want to first of all just thank all three presenters. Uh, I was thrilled to hear the history from Andrea, and I loved both Kenan and Victoria's comments uh, from uh, further deepening the psychological uh, articulation of Edith's life. So I look forward to that. But I, uh, I think both the developmental piece and the archetypal piece are very, very relevant to this discussion. And I especially like Victoria's discussion of 
her entering into a fuller aspect of herself once she went through divorce. I think that was certainly very, um, um, you know, uh, important. I hadn't heard that actually. I knew that I knew that uh, having an abortion can often open a woman up to uh, the fuller part of her life. But I think having a divorce fits into that category. So I thought that was very interesting. Thank you all. Very, very interesting uh, program. Arlo, I think this is a great program. Thank you. Danielle, can I just jump in here real, real quickly? Sure, go for it. I, I, just, I just have to comment on this because um, shortly before Edith's death, she was interviewed um, at length by a journalist uh, named Mary Donnelly. Um, and it is from that interview that we get a lot of uh, Edith's viewpoints on life because it was a, a pretty all-encompassing um, discussion. And uh, Mary Donnelly took, took great care to, as she said, put it down in Edith's words and not interpret it herself. Um, and it, it, was, it was wonderful reading these. And when I first started writing this book, I wrote it as historical fiction. And the framework was that Edith was, that she, she had hired a young reporter, a young woman reporter to uh, be her biographer. So I used Mary Donnelly as the, the prototype for this. Um, but of course I changed her name and I changed it to Mary Doherty. <laughs> so that is just fantastic. That lovely synchronicity. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's thank great. You. Yes. Thank you for being here. <laughs> thank, you. thank you very much. Okay. Uh, David. Uh, thank you. The um, presentation and the comments here are brilliant. I would like to add that Edith Rockefeller McCormick uh, did something for Jung's development. Jung came to America in the winter of 1925 and went to Taos, New Mexico with Fowler McCormick and they met up with Jaime de Angelo who was an, an anthropologist and Jung met the elder, the uh, leader of the Pueblo in Taos Mountain Lake and it was the first time he could interview somebody with a non-Western tradition in English and it was an awakening for him. So that Edith Rockefeller McCormick had an influence in Zurich, of course, in a profound way, but it went in the other direction too. Great, that's great. I, I, I love that. Uh, thank you for, for pointing that out. Yes, at Fowler was, uh, Jung's tour guide for that trip in the American West. Um, and he also in other places in the world. Um, but yes, that was his first encounter with the Native American school of thought. And uh, I, I love that notion that through Fowler, Edith had that, that further uh, influence on Jung's development. So wonderfully said. Let me make a, a, an observation. Uh, I think uh, I appreciated your uh, comment, Victoria, on betrayal and the significance of betrayal. 
Um, and uh, I think you had written, Andrea, a number of times about the sort of attitudes towards infidelity and so forth in, in the process. But to, but to see that those were occasions of betrayal that, that in a way were necessary in order to uh, open up the sort of process of individuation. Um, and that it, perhaps it happened both ways. Uh, I think in some ways for, um, uh, for Edith uh, to, or for Harold to observe Edith's engagement with Jung at some level had some ten necessarily had some tension, I think. Uh, yeah. But whether there was also some sense for him of betrayal, but he was in a bit of a bind because he was also Jung's uh, analysand. Uh, so uh, the dynamics of individuation and betrayal, I think, are, are very, very connected. And I appreciated your bringing that up, uh, I think, for both Edith and for Harold. So I, I wanted to say uh, something about that too. Um, Victoria, did, did, um, did you think about also that John Dee's father, Bill, um, led this double life? That, uh, that he, he would go around uh, like this snake oil salesman, um, deaf and mute, uh, pretending to be deaf and mute, um, selling his wares. But not only was he selling his wares, he was selling himself. And he had this wife somewhere else. So what, her name was Nancy Brown. And he was married to her and had children. But he was also uh, married to Eliza uh, Davison and had a family with her, and uh, John Dee was one of their children. So rooted in John Dee's life was this experience of a, a father who betrayed everyone. <laughs> so I just want to point that out. Yes, I, I do think that's a really important kind of aspect in the ether. I, I don't think Edith was necessarily aware of it at the time, this history of, of betrayal and, and a kind of double life. But certainly she marries somebody who replicates that for her. And um, in terms of, I think, I believe we, we chase these um, these wounds in order to heal them, not to actually flagellate ourselves with them. And I, I actually feel that Harold was um, in many ways her, her perfect partner for a while. And he was devoted to her from what we know from Andrea. And he, he actually gave her the love that she craved, I think for a while that she hadn't enjoyed growing up. But um I, yeah, I think it's it's so complicated the the different betrayals that that we can pull out of here, and certainly her father betrays her in abandoning her, and um, 
treating her so differently from her other siblings. But my sense is Edith had this intuitive um, radar for, um, in a sense, trying to heal this, this wounded Eros is how I see it. That's a, that's a th generational theme of trauma through the family. And um, yet as a, as a parent herself, of course, she, she kind of reverted to type. And um, for me as a, as a mother, it's very poignant just how her children all ended up uh, revealing different layers of, of, of that kind of emotional absence that she, because she wasn't really able to be present for them. And I sense, I've been talking with Andrea about the loss of the first child and my sense is that she was so heartbroken by that, that maybe she just couldn't bond with the rest of her children. Right. As Andrea points out in those days, everyone lost children. It was kind of a, something you almost expected. Yeah. But I still feel that given Edith's tremendous um, sensitivity and, and intuitive um, intellect that she, that was something that grief she carried and she, she probably never quite integrated it fully. But to go back to the, the grant to Edith's grandfather for a minute, um, big bill, <laughs> um, as, as Kenan rightfully pointed out, you know, he was, he was a snake oil salesman and he would disappear for months at a time, you know, on the road selling his wares. Um, and, uh, of course, the children had no idea that there was another family out there. That's where he was spending his time. Um, and it's my belief that Edith didn't know this until the early 1900s. Um, you know, here's the Tarbell series coming out, um, you know, one article after another lambasting her father. Um, and um, Big Bill gets pulled into this as well. Now, her experience with her grandfather had been that he was this larger than life colorful character you know they're they're in this very strict very black and white existence in their home um and big bill comes you know bounding through the door with his fiddle and his tales of life on the road and he he is full of life so she must have adored him and to have this information come out must have made her also question what is real here? What, what is the truth? Not only in terms of her father, because I'm sure she was getting her eyes opened as well by the Tarball series, um, but also in terms of her grandfather. So, you know, can, can she trust the men in her life? I don't know. <laughs> and perhaps there was in her father a bit of a reaction to that, huh? to, to have yeah. such a, a restricted life for Edith was uh, could be seen as a compensatory. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. But Andrea, so I was thinking also, what, who were the men, the true core men of Edith's life? We start with her father, and then Harold, and then Jung, and then Kren. So there'd be four men, which is a quaternity. 
if you say so. so. I, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's, it's four or something. It, it's the circle divided into four. So, so yeah. I, I just was looking at how we synthesize the persona of these four men as all serving some aspect of Edith's individuation, mm-hmm. if we're not going to get too rational about it. But, but um, I believe they all serve different aspects of her animus imago, sort of this, this inner sense of her 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 animus which i think had been repressed and conflicted all her life but later obviously when she has the real estate business she's able to um integrate her animus as opposed to i think it had been mostly displaced all her life with the imperial complex you mentioned um do you feel she had sort of less of that imperial complex in the 20s when she returns from zurich well, maybe a little. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay. I'm, I'm thinking about what how you, how you started. Um, okay. Which was um, thinking of Edwin as the the fourth in that yeah. fraternity, um, and how Edith was absolutely in control of that situation because it was her choice to bring him back. She gave him a million dollars, installed him in the Drake Hotel right across the street. Um, and it, he was at her beck and call at all times. So, wow, what an entirely different relationship than she had with her father, um, or with Harold. (laughs) Um, so it, it kind of is a progression, isn't it in her life? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's interesting to see. I mean, and to go back to something that Kenan said earlier, which was, um, looking at Edith's mother and grandmother's and their intellectual curiosity um, and pointing out that her mother had been a very independent woman and a teacher and writer. um, But then as soon as she married, she took on a very traditional mother wife role, which is then what Edith did when she married Harold, she took on this very traditional role. And it wasn't until she came back from Zurich that she started singing a very different song. Um, She had written articles in the early 1900s about the role of a woman. Um, The four cornerstones of it were um, to tend to your husband, to your children, to your home, and lastly, to yourself. It was in that order. And then when she came back uh, following the divorce, of course, things that happened in the meantime, right? This is now 1921. Women can vote. And all of a sudden, women are in business. And, you know, there's a woman in the Senate or House of Representatives. um, And it's a different environment, right? And it probably, to tie into something that Victoria said then, it was probably the combination of her time with Jung and the scandal the betrayal of the divorce that made it possible for edith to break through and have a completely different viewpoint of a woman's role than she did before she left for zurich so it's a fascinating study in a woman's one woman's evolution um so yeah I, i both of those points are really interesting to me that you brought those up 
Looks like Jane has a question. Yes. Um, what about the descendants? I know of David Rockefeller, Chase, Manhattan Bank, and Vietnam. Uh, I know of Nelson, governor of New York, tried to be president, but the divorce was a handicap there, I think. And Jay Rockefeller, senator from West Virginia, I believe, married to Sharon Percy, whose twin sister was murdered. And to my knowledge, they have never found the culprit. Um, what about others? What about the younger Rockefellers? So um, those are all Junior's descendants, um, right? He was the only male and he was the only one who maintained that Rockefeller surname. So any Rockefeller that we know of beyond that initial generation um, is a descendant of Junior's. Um, Edith's uh, three children, um, that's, that's a bit of a complicated story. Um, so the first one to marry was Mathilde, who married her, her riding instructor. Um, they had two children, Anita and Peter. Peter did not have any children. Anita did. Um, and um, that, that's where we find Edith's DNA, I suppose, is in that branch. Um, and that family has been um, very supportive throughout this process and uh, lovely people. Um, so that's Matilde's branch. Then Fowler, you know, having married his best friend's mother, um, and, you know, it was kind of a stepfather slash stepfriend to all of these um, pretty much grown children. Um, so um, he... Uh, Fowler was a lovely person from all accounts, uh, very well adjusted and uh, very much involved in his family's life. And then Muriel, who had had her posthumous engagement, um, eventually did marry uh, Elijah Hubbard, um, who was, oh, I don't know, 25 years older or something than herself. Um, she did not have any biological children. Um, there was a story in the newspaper when, well, this was in the like 1920s, um, that Muriel was, had been hospitalized um, for appendicitis. And um, this was suspicious because Muriel had had her appendix removed <laughs> as a small child. So I investigated a little bit deeper and the uh, physician that was tending to her was an OBGYN. Huh. Um, so something happened there. Um, she never had any biological children, but she did adopt um, two different sets of, of children um, and was, was basically an unfit mother. Fowler took her to court um, to have the children released from her care. So, um, yeah, there's not a lot of Edith DNA out there, but there's a little bit. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the question. Any uh, additional questions or comments? I might think a little bit about her being the first union analyst in Chicago. Yes. And yes. The, the sort of process of her training, if you will. Uh, I think one of the 
key parts of almost all analytic training is that one's own analysis is really a key part of the training, perhaps the most significant part. And uh, Edith, I think, really uh, illustrates in a way that it was her work with Hume, um, which was both the analytic work, I suspect, and a lot of the other contact that she had that became her training ground for becoming a union analyst. And uh, I think what has, it's interesting that what has persisted, I think, is the significance still attached to one's own analysis as part of the process of becoming an analyst. Um, and certainly, uh, I think she, Edith, uh, illustrates well the sort of transformation that occurred uh, from from really being a uh, persona identified ego, if you will, uh, right. to one that was much more connected to deeper self material in her. Right. Yes. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Arlo. And I meant to say that what's so striking is that she moves from being this kind of passive uh, version of herself in the marriage to really stepping into a different kind of power. And, and she never was a victim. I just really wanted to say that, that she did not succumb to the victim archetype from what I understand. I mean, Andrea, you can speak more to that, but um, I think that's, that for me is a really important point that she kept reinventing herself, so to speak yeah. at a time when I know women were starting to, to claim more of the the stage or the seat at your table or however you want to put it. But she, she really was um, using, I think, the, the, the time that she had in Zurich that had restored her to some extent. She was really manifesting yes. something new and thinking new thoughts, which was always, I love that phrase, that my direct object in life is to think new thoughts. Oh, um, very powerful. Psychologically. Yeah, thank you. I also think that uh, the role of analyst probably fit her well. I I don't get the sense that she was ever comfortable sitting with her girlfriends and chatting about how she felt, having those heart-to-hearts. I just don't see that. I could be wrong. Who knows, right? I wasn't there. Um, But... Um, in this role as analyst, she can have that intimacy with another human being where they completely open up to her and she can absorb that, but she doesn't need to reciprocate, which is probably an ideal situation for her. (laughs) I'll just leave that there. (laughs) Well, I, I think that, that there was a fit for her huh? uh, in being an analyst herself and being uh, really fairly introverted. Uh, and so in that sense, she adapted well and found a place where she could be very important and meaningful to a lot of people. Um, 
it is kind of interesting. She ended up in sort of a caretaking role of the analysands uh, who came to her, um, whereas she had difficulty with her own children uh, in that kind of role. I'd like to say something. Yes, Mary. Yes. Uh, it, I, uh, I was touched by your description of her walk in the rain. I thought that there was a certain embodied quality that that had to uh, em- generate for her, that she was not just thinking these thoughts, that she was embodying a staunch, uh, I'm gonna do this myself kind of thing. And uh, also having her uh, driver come alongside the train. So she was trying to ride the train. She was trying to walk through the, uh, the constraints that, her, that she had grown up with, uh, the overprotected. Uh, so she was really, it seems to me, trying to uh, perform her way through that transformation. So that by the time she got to back to Chicago, she had gone through enough transformation in her own life and the divorce and all the rest of it that she could probably sit on pretty solid grounds with her, her patient in Alessands. She had lived fairly in important life. What I'm curious about is, did she ever publish anything about her work? I didn't know. No, I, I was unable to find anything like that, but I do believe that her papers were destroyed after her death um, at the McCormick family archives and the Rockefeller archives. Oh. Um, you know, the files for everybody else are thick boxes upon boxes upon boxes. And no, this, is a, this is a family that saved every single coal receipt and, you know, um, and even for the other women, um, Anita McCormick, for instance, has, you know, massive files, but Edith's are these slim, slim files. So something happened. Um, and certainly her time with Jung, she would have had to journal. That would have been, I would think, been a big part of uh, her work with him. Um, and those are nowhere to be found. Wow. So um, Smell. she did write something, it's it's gone. <laughs> And Andrea, didn't you also say at the at the Zurich Society there's no real evidence of her, which is yeah. also incredibly confounding. Yes. Oh, and it was heartbreaking, right? I, so I went to Zurich um, to to see the hotel and and to visit the psychological club and and uh, you know sort of visit all her old haunts. Um, and I had communicated with uh, the Young Institute over there um, ahead of time, said, I'd like to look at any files. And they said, oh, yes, we'll pull the McCormick files. So excited, right? Um, yeah. And then I had this kind of mishap getting there. So I was traveling with my uh, teenage daughter at the time, um, just backpacks, just, you know, kind of the whole Europe experience. And uh, we, we took the, it, we had a meeting uh, in the evening in Kusnacht, I think it was an eight o'clock meeting. And so we took the train from Zurich and uh, I got off the wrong stop. <laughs> I, read, I read the, the uh, station listings wrong, got off at the wrong stop. And we realized it as we're standing there on the platform, doors had closed behind us. 
So I banged on the doors that didn't open, pulled off. So I had 10 minutes to get from this station to the next Kuznoff station. It was not far, right? Um, but there were no cabs. It's, you know, 7.50 in the evening and t- tiny little town. Um, so there was one, one other person on the platform. So I went up to him and luckily I speak a little German and I, I asked, you know, how, how can we get to Kuznoff? Can we call a cab or whatever? He said, well, you know, it, it'll take a while to get here. And I had all these people waiting for us. And I thought, oh, you know, total rookie move, idiot here, right? And so um, he, this, this one lone gentleman on the platform, his ride pulled up and he offered to drive us to Kuznoff. So shoved my daughter in the back seat of a stranger's car, hopped in beside her. And just like Edith had done, we raced along those train tracks, <laughs> that same road, I'm pretty sure, um, to make it to the next station just about the same time that that train arrived. Um, then we get there. We finally managed to make it to the, uh, to the Young Institute and uh, sitting around a big table. Uh, and the, uh, the gentleman there says, well, I'm so sorry. The McCormick file is for Medill McCormick, not for Edith and Harold. We don't have anything. Oh, <laughs> oh my. Yeah. <laughs> there, we had a lovely discussion that evening. I was happy to be there. It was, it was certainly a memorable experience in all sorts of ways, <laughs> but they did not have any information for me on Edith. So you had your own night sea journey yourself. <laughs> That's a great story. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I'll never forget that one. <laughs> George, you have a question or comment? Yes. First, um, I want to thank all three ladies. This is incredible. I really enjoyed your presentation. And I have a question since it's the three ladies. I want to read a very short quote from Deidre Bear's book about women and Jung and how this implies Edith. And it's on page 394. Jung placed upon women the burden to force men to recognize the spiritual attributes of the self. He held men responsible for foistering an increasingly technocratic scientific worldview upon humanity. Therefore, woman's task was to make men accept that Jung's unspecified spirituality was equally valid within that worldview. End quote. So maybe just some reflections. And the, the last note about Chicago, I always wondered what happened to Edith and Chicago, why there isn't more recognition of that. But I think I've had a better understanding of that. Thank you. But that quote, and as three women that have really emphasized Jung's work, well, how, how do you react to that? Well, I'll take, I'll take a stab at it, George. Yeah. Um, I think Jung was always trying to bring the feminine um, into the mm-hmm. idea of God. Um, and, and so his emphasis would be on the feminine and because yeah. of his recognition uh, of patriarchal culture and that what 
the anima brings or what the feminine uh, brings is simply mm -hmm. not incorporated yet. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, as you were reading the quote, it just made me think of Edith's letters to her father. Right. So here he is uh -huh. uh, really, you know, the Titan of industry. And she is talking about the great divine guiding spirit. And she's talking about, I sometimes wish you could let me near you so you can feel the warmth of one human soul. Um, so, and of course she's married to, Beautiful. you know, the, the, the heir of the, the harvester family here. So, and, you know, they pretty much revolutionized agriculture here in the United States. So mm -hmm. um, yes, I, I, I agree with Deidre Bear wow. and uh, think Edith yep. was very much trying to do that. Um, one can argue whether or not she was successful at it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I concur with, with the other responses, um, even yeah. though I'm not sure did, I'm not sure I always agree with Deidre Bear personally. But um, I think it's certainly worth um, having a discussion about it. But what I what I did want to uh, touch back on is is the fact that Edith's father really sided with Harold throughout this whole time, yeah, despite yeah. the fact that Harold was the the wanderer, just like John D. Rockefeller's father, and yet and with this strict religious um, kind of rubric, how how did that, how do you think psychologically that was negotiated within John D's mm. psyche? It just is the strangest thing that on the, yeah. on the day after the divorce, you said that John D still sent Harold his Christmas check. Yes. I mean, a reward <laughs> yes. for, for yes. sabotaging the marriage covenant. Yes. Um, yeah. That seems anathema. So how how do we reconcile these paradoxes? And that Edith knew intimately all of these micro betrayals, as I call them. Yes. Yeah. Well, dear father, I sometimes <laughs> wish you could forget I am a woman. You know, I mean, yeah, there, yeah, there, powerful. There was no gender equity in in the House of Rockefeller, so Harold would be forgiven his his dalliances his missteps um Her it is fun to note though that harold after he went through this gland surgery um and and traveled to europe to to marry ghana he sent father a telegram just to let him know and there's a note on the telegram that uh it was read to john d and that there was no response so he was oh. careful he was careful not to endorse it necessarily but his relationship with harold continued without a hitch whereas he and edith never saw each other again and edith was meant it was she had to pay over and over again for the remainder of her life for the decisions that she had made do you so think I, it was because he decided early on he had just determined that she was the black sheep she was going to carry the failure 
of that marriage, whether she was really responsible or not. She was scapegoated in essence. There's a scapegoat. Yes. And I think that was a gradual process. But and I think there were a lot of factors. Don't you think it also had to do with that she she left the Baptist church? Yes. John yeah, Dee yeah. was so totally rooted in in this religion. And if yeah. his children were going to free themselves from it, you know, they were going to hell. Yes. Mm-hmm. Although, it, you know, that, yeah. that one's a hard one for me, too, because, yes, he was, you know, deeply rooted in the Baptist church. But look at what he was doing ethically in his business practices. So yeah, there's, yeah. you know, there are a lot was of it a blind there. spot. Was it truly a blind spot or was he conscious of playing favorites like that? That's what I wonder, too. Oh, is that kind of damage that Edith had to integrate? So there are, you know, the correspondence between uh, John D. and Junior all remains often in duplicate. Um, and uh, there is a lot of correspondence between the two of them about Edith um, saying things like, you know, she, she had attempted a, a business venture while in, in Zurich, which I didn't have time to go into in this presentation. It's amazing. You can talk for an hour and there's so much you have to leave out. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, but yeah. she, she had uh, been approached by an inventor who had a process for hardening wood so that it could withstand more pressure. Um, and she poured about what three hundred thousand dollars into this, mm-hmm. um, into testing and um, so on, and ultimately it failed. So she had to fess up to father, mm-hmm. and father basically said, "I trust you will not undertake any business ventures in the future." And Edith said, "No, you're wow. right. You're right. I won't ever try this again." Then of course she does. She tries the real estate <laughs> business. And that's where all this correspondence between father and junior um, takes place that says, you know, when she comes to us asking for money, no, you know, she's, she's made her own bed or after the divorce, you know, okay. Again, the, the two men are, are communicating and, and keep in mind that Edith didn't want the divorce. Father found her um, an attorney she was trying to avoid the whole thing. Um, and this attorney was communicating to father and junior behind Edith's back mm-hmm. about what was happening. So, <laughs> I mean, she was, she was never in control of any of this. Um, and they were always, always kind of sticking it to her for decisions that she had made that they didn't approve of. Um, and that continued to, to almost the end of her life when finally Junior stepped in and said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll give you some money. I'll set you up in the Drake Hotel, but you give me, give me your jewelry and uh, close up your houses and uh, we'll, we'll call it a deal. Mm. So it's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking and maddening. <laughs> you think she was punished because she went on to become this independent person and actually succeed in becoming a union analyst. Do you think that, that uh, she did not shrivel up and go mad in an attic? She was an actually very uh, passionate and uh, successful woman for her time. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. 
we opened up our own practice and it was very successful. Yeah, but they never acknowledged any of that success. No, I know, that, but that's because she was a woman. Yes. Um, yes. And I also think that father didn't have a high opinion of Jung or his methods. So probably was not thrilled that she became an analyst. I I would agree with you. Yes, I can see that. But uh, it's, it's a very, it's a complex situation where, uh, she actually went on to, uh, uh, embody her beliefs in a practice. I mean, I think that's, she didn't go mad. She didn't know which could have easily happened. Uh, she actually have, uh, flourished in, in her practice. And she may have helped a lot of people. She may have. I would, I would love to know that part of the story, right? Yeah, that's when that, really interesting. When that, but I mean, she was seeing how many people you, you alluded to a, a fair number. So I don't 50 know. to 100. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's amazing. Just just a quick comment about that, Mary. I think in the male world of her dad and so forth, she didn't make any money at what she was doing. It was her choice. Huh? Oh, okay, okay, I get you. But yeah. it's kind of interesting that uh, I think she she stood firm in doing what she did and did it no doubt well. But in the male world, they might have easily discounted it because she didn't make any money. Well, the real estate business, but the real estate business was successful, correct? Until the depression. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, correct. And and also it should be noted that they it was an equal opportunity employer at a time when women were just considered for two things in life. But they still women. Yeah. But she was very idealistic, even in a real estate business. She was- Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute here. <laughs> One of the women I love of, of all is Eleanor Roosevelt. And Eleanor Roosevelt became Eleanor Roosevelt because she had an absolutely horrible mother, Anna Hall, who did not like her. Uh, even worse, mm. Stepmother, Sarah Delano. Oh, my God, that's the road to hell. And because Franklin had an affair with Lucy Mercer. Okay, that made Eleanor Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt. Okay, so before we start crying over Edith, let's look at this from the other point of view. They made her who she became. We are talking about her now. We are ta- we're educated people. We're talking about yeah, it now yeah. because of who she became and she became who she became because of all of her shit. Now that's the road to progress. Well said. And wait, I have to go back and, and fix something that I said earlier. Uh, Mary Doherty, I, I lied. It, the the uh, journalist who interviewed her was not Mary Donnelly. It was Mary Doherty. That that was her actual name. And she, oh, wow. yes, she wrote for the New York Evening Journal and she, she wrote a series called Life As It Seemed to Me by Mrs. McCormick. So I don't know. I don't know who your ancestors are, Mary Doherty, but perhaps, just perhaps it's spelled the same. Perhaps this other Mary Mary Darty is in your past. 
Well, there's lots of Mary Doherty's, so, but I love the, I love the story and I'll hold it dear. Thank you. And, and there are many Mary Doherty's within our own Mary Doherty. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Mary. Well, I'm, I'm taking your presence as an excellent sign. Yes. Yeah. Well, I just still want to go back to why in all of our erudite studies, None of us had heard of Edith until Andrea's book. Well, and in Chicago history in general, Chicago. right? And I think it was it was George who said that, right? I mean, I grew up here in Chicago. I'd never heard of her, right? And and there, there's nothing here that bears her name. She should have a plaque. She should have a bust. She should have something. And there is yeah. nothing. It's, it's wrong. It's just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> David, you have your hand up? I want to comment that the uh, huh. detail I like best in your presentation, Andrea Ross, was showing the ship that Edith McCormick <laughs> sailed on. That it was like, in a way, it was like Isolde traveling from uh, Ireland to Cornwall. I mean, and the fact that the ship mm -hmm. had a female name, that it was named after the crown. I, I'm sorry, I forget who. Cecilia, I, I, yes. I've taken to looking at the boats that famous people have sailed on and what it's happened. So this operatic supporter of the opera, she led an operatic life in a way. She did. And so that's a wonderful detail. Thank you. Oh, thank you so mm. much. <laughs> and, and she yes. wrote songs, Andrea, you must tell us or even play for us one of her songs and they're all about love. Yes. She, oh, she really? The, yeah, she wrote the lyrics. So she, uh, this was again, later in her life in the late 1920s, uh, she took to writing lyrics to songs and they're all about romantic love. Um, which, I don't know, that, that one still, you know, makes my brain go a little twisty. Um, it's all very interesting. So, what time of a life, though, Andrea, did she write that? What kind of a what? What, what time money. of her life? What, oh, what period of uh, her life? Yes, towards the end. So, towards um, the end? Wow. Yeah, in the uh, mid-1920s. Hmm. Late 50s. She was late 50s. Right. Hmm. Yes. So Mary oh. Ellen has a question. Yes, yeah. I see Mary Ellen has popped up. Hi, Andrea. How are you? Um, I just wanted to say there is a monument to Edith, and that's at the Graceland Cemetery oh. in Chicago, right near the Cubs. Where she's buried. Yeah. Yes, her grave. Yeah, it's her interesting grave. because, um, and I recommend people in Chicago taking on a nice day, a nice venture out there to see the, mm. the people who made Chicago what it is. Um, I I've mm. always found it interesting that she was buried across the pond from Harold for all eternity. That's exactly right. Um, yes. I, to change the trajectory a bit, I wonder if you could say something about her relationship with James Joyce. That has always, always intrigued mm. me. Was it Jung who influenced her dropping him from the financial roles? So there are a lot of people who, who um, suggest that um, Edith recommended Jung be analyzed and he refused. Uh, or, or I'm sorry, that Joyce, <laughs> that Joyce, there's too many J's, um, that Joyce get analyzed um, and he refused and that, that Jung 
I was angered by this and pressured Edith to drop him, um, to drop her support of him. Um, there are even some that suggest that a character in one of his um, writings is, is, you know, with this kind of haughty society woman um, is based on Edith. I could not find any evidence of that. Um, so I didn't want to speculate on exactly why she dropped him. Um, he did have a very, very troubled daughter who later on um, underwent analysis with Jung. Um, so yes, it was only 18 months and Edith's, mm. Edith's uh, MO in terms of her giving was um, to give very generously and very hands-off and ideally anonymously. And she tried to do so with James Joyce, um, but he, he had friended somehow he figured out who she was. Um, so, um, and then, but not to keep it coming for forever. She didn't want people to become dependent upon her philanthropy. So whether she withdrew it for that reason, that she wanted him to stand on his own and to have to work a little harder to, to um, be supported in some way, uh, or whether she was influenced by Jung, I, I do not know. Thank you. Mary, Mary Ann, um, with your hand up. Oh, I just put in the chat, um, it, you were speaking about uh, Edith Rockefeller McCormick not being known in Chicago. And I just wanted to mention that Women Building Chicago, 1790 to 1990, it includes 430 biographies of Chicago women. And there's a full biography of Edith Rockefeller McCormick in that book. So if you're interested in Edith Rockefeller McCormick and specifically her relationship to Chicago, that's a, that's a great place to start. Mm -hmm. Thank yes, you. Thanks. That is a nice, it is a nice write-up of her. It's true. Yes. Well, any uh, final question or comment? Uh, we're bumping up against 12 o'clock. Um, If not, let me express my appreciation, Andrea, for your wonderful presentation here, for your book, for your engagement with us. We really are delighted mm. to have gotten to know you and experience uh, the time with you. Uh, you've been a, a wonderful uh, presenter and participant. And thank you to Ken and to Victoria also for your comments and your presence here and facilitating a bit of the conversation. Well, I would like to thank thank you, Arlo and Victoria, for, for suggesting this program in the first place. Um, I think that this would have meant a great deal to Edith to be recognized by this group. Um, be, she never really had that in her lifetime. So I the, yeah. this was very important to me that, that um, you all um, know yeah. about her. So thank you for this opportunity. So Andrea, that, that makes me wonder why she didn't try to replicate what she had had in Zurich here in Chicago. Was it just that she lacked um, Jung as the, the figurehead or, you know, why not create a society here? 
that was certainly her intent, right? She wanted to, she wanted to set up Villa Turicum as an institute for mm -hmm. analytical psychology. Um, and oh. in, part, in part, that's why she brought Edwin Krenn back with her um, because she felt that with his architectural background um, that he could help set that up. So why it never came to be um, is, is not obvious. Um, I do think that um, Jung and the whole environment in Zurich was a driving force there. And it must have been very difficult to try to start something here on her own. Mm. Um, she also ended up spending very little time at Villa Turicum in part because they had shelling practice there at nearby Fort Sheridan um, periodically, which would not have been very conducive to um, healing of any sort. Um, so I don't know exactly why. I, she continued her own work and she would speak out about the benefits of analytical psychology, but she never really took any steps towards establishing a formal institute here. Mm -hmm. so maybe okay. given more time, she would have. Maybe the financial aspect that hit, you know, six years after she returned here, maybe that is the answer. I, I don't know. Okay, thank you. Interesting question, though. Yeah, okay, good question. Well, let me also thank all of the participants. Uh, appreciate your for listening. If you'd like more information about training programs, archives, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst in you, visit our website, jungchicago.org. Thank you to our 2021 donors who gave at the contributing member level or above. The Arlene M. Feiner Trust, Barbara Anon, Arlo and Rena Compan, Judith Cooper, Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, Carl and Patricia Greer, Ryan Mayer, Patricia Martin, Boris Matthews, Sue Rosenthal, Diane Sherwood, Debbie Stutzman, Lawrence Chad Tingley, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, Gerald Weiner, and Ellen Young. You can also become a supporter of this podcast by visiting our website, newchicago.org. Thanks.